This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified except by society members themselves. Journalist John Ronson had come to Portugal to track down the Bilderberg Group. The people he interviewed insisted that this group of corporate suits ruled the world from the shadows. Ronson was skeptical, but he was curious too. Were CEOs, presidents, and members of royal families really gathering in hotels every year to scheme about achieving global domination? In June 1999, Ronson's curiosity led him to climb into a car with a man who called himself Big Jim Tucker. Big Jim had agreed to act as Ronson's guide to all things Bilderberg. But now, they were being followed. After leaving the Caesar Park Hotel, the rumored location of the Bilderberg Group's meetings, a dark green Lancia started tailing them. So, Ronson called the British Embassy. He explained that he was a satirical journalist who had somehow fallen afoul of the Bilderberg Group. In response, the woman on the other end of the line gasped. Then, in an urgent voice, she said, Listen, Bilderberg is much bigger than we are. We're just a little embassy. Do you understand? They're way out of our league. A chill went up Ronson's spine. What kind of group could strike fear in the heart of a representative of the British Empire? He'd consider the nefarious tales of the Bilderberg group to be overwrought, humorous even, but as the green car followed them down the deserted road, Bronson wasn't laughing anymore. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Black Hand to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our first of two episodes on the Bilderberg Group, an international conference that meets annually. 
The purported goal of these meetings is to encourage dialogue between the most influential power brokers from Europe and North America. However, what actually happens behind their closed doors is unknown. All their conversations and activities remain a secret. This week, we'll explore how the carnage wrought by two world wars inspired Polish intellectual Józef Rettinger to convene the first Bilderberg Group meeting in 1954. We'll also cover how journalist John Ronson began looking into the group and detail how his investigation put him in the Bilderberg's crosshairs. Next week, we'll track John Ronson's confrontation with the Bilderberg Group. Then we'll explore some of the wildest theories about the group's supposedly dastardly aims, like how they handpick world leaders and destabilize entire countries at a whim. The Bilderberg Group refers to a rotating roster of international elites who meet in different luxury hotels around the world for an annual three-day conference. The first of these meetings took place in 1954 at the Hotel de Bilderberg in the Netherlands. Since then, there have been 64 others and counting. According to the Bilderberg Group's steering committee, their goal is to foster dialogue between Europe and North America. The subject matter of their discussions allegedly ranges from climate change to capitalism. To that end, every year around 130 political leaders and experts from, quote, Industry, finance, labor, academia, and the media are invited to take part in the conference. In the early years of Bilderberg, the guest list was jealously guarded. However, the group established a website in 2014 and have maintained a public list of participants ever since. In 2019, Bilderberg attendees included senior advisor to President Trump, Jared Kushner, former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, former Google CEO Eric Schmidt, and Goldman Sachs CEO Richard Nade, among others. Due to the esteemed attendees and the supposedly dry discussions, the group's defenders have likened Bilderberg to the G7 summit. G7 is an annual meeting where the leaders of seven of the world's most powerful countries discuss global issues. However, there is one major difference. The organizers of the Bilderberg meetings insist on total privacy. Unlike the G7 summit, which is covered ad nauseum by the media, journalists aren't granted access to Bilderberg. There's no official media coverage. The meeting's organizers insist privacy fosters honest discussion, allowing attendees to gather more useful insights. The group's detractors, however, accuse them of having a culture of secrecy. They insist that the Bilderberg Group is hiding their true evil from the world. According to these critics, the group's crimes range from creating new infectious diseases to crafting devices to mind control the masses. But before we delve further into the claims leveled against the Bilderberg Group, it's important to understand the group's founder, a mysterious man called Yusuf Rettinger. A close friend once said to Rettinger, Yusef, my friend, they say you're a Freemason, an agent of the intelligence service of the CIA, the Vatican, and that you collaborate with communists. What is the truth about you? To that, Rettinger coyly replied, tell them that's not even the half of it. Here's what we do know about Rettinger. 
He was born the youngest of four children in Krakow, Poland, on April 17, 1888. According to his memoirs, Yusef's father, Rettinger Sr., was the legal advisor and friend to Count Vladislav Zamoyski, an enormously wealthy eccentric with vast estates in both northwest and southern Poland. When Rettinger's father died suddenly, it was the Count who took charge of the young boy's education. Zamoyski's money was well spent. Even as a child, Rettinger was very bright. As a result, he soon discovered the range of issues plaguing his country. During Rettinger's childhood, Poland wasn't a sovereign state. It was partitioned between Prussia, Austria, and Russia. Their lack of statehood made Poles desperate to maintain a sense of national consciousness. They indoctrinated their children with patriotism for a country that didn't technically exist. And this permeated everything. As a child, Rettinger was told time and time again about his grandfather's adventures in the Polish rebellions against the Russians. These stories filled him with a hatred for war and a staunch love of his homeland, Poland. In reference to this dichotomy, Rettinger once allegedly claimed to his schoolmates, I wish Poland would soon be independent again, so I would not have to be a damn patriot. Fortunately for Rettinger, war had yet to be put on his agenda. The 18-year-old graduated from secondary school in 1906. By then, he was brilliant at math and fluent in at least four languages. So Rettinger's benefactor, Count Zamoyski, sent him to study at the prestigious Sorbonne University in Paris, France. After enrolling, Rettinger set about getting acquainted with his new city. Thanks to Count Zamoyski's connections, Rettinger was granted access to the city's aristocracy. He soon rubbed elbows with princes, countesses, and world-revered statesmen. However, Rettinger didn't let his networking get in the way of his studies. In 1908, the 20-year-old became the youngest person ever to graduate from the Sorbonne with a PhD in French literature. From there, Rettinger decided to pursue a career in politics, in an act of foresight, he opted to get another degree in psychology, believing an understanding of the human mind might later aid him as a politician. So in 1908, Rettinger traveled to Munich, where he studied comparative psychology. After graduating, the 24-year-old returned to his native Poland and got married. But as he settled into his new life, World War I was brewing. In 1912, Poland was still divided, a part of the Russian, German, and Austro-Hungarian empires. Should war break out between these countries, Poles would have to serve in all three armies, meaning Polish officers would inevitably have to fight against their countrymen. This reality prompted a group of Polish independence activists called the Supreme National Council to ask Rettinger to lead their group. It's likely they recruited him because of his unique background, Rettinger's knowledge of politics, his staunch Polish patriotism, and his penchant for befriending the rich and influential made him the perfect advocate for Polish independence. By 1913, 25-year-old Rettinger had accepted their offer and moved to London, where he'd be well-positioned to negotiate international relations. There, he cultivated relationships with Prime Minister H.H. H. Asquith and future Prime Minister Winston Churchill. One year later, in 1914, World War I broke out, and Rettinger attempted to use the political relationships he'd nurtured in London to push for Polish independence. 
However, over the course of a long, brutal war, Rettinger saw his plans fall to pieces. Though Poland did gain independence, historian H. Paul Jeffers writes that Rettinger's political machinations caused him to be declared persona non grata by Austria, branded an enemy with a death penalty by Germany, and barred from England. Penniless and exiled from Europe, 30-year-old Rettinger fled to Mexico. But it wasn't long before Rettinger returned to his usual penchant of leveraging relationships to influence politics. According to one of his close friends, K.A. Yelensky, during his time in Mexico, Rettinger offered the Mexican government a plan to nationalize oil. For its implementation, he began secret negotiations with Washington. So, by the 1930s, Rettinger's influence stretched from Europe through South America and all the way into the United States. In 1939, Germany invaded Poland, beginning the deadliest military conflict in history, World War II. Shortly after, Poland's prime minister in exile, General Władysław Sikorski, prompted 51-year-old Rettinger's return to Europe. Rettinger was hired as Sikorski's chief of staff in London. For the next three years, the two men were rarely apart, and soon Rettinger began confiding in Sikorski. He told him about his new dream of a united Europe, one that would replace warfare with diplomatic conversation as a means to settle disputes. And Sikorsky clearly liked what he heard. Due to Rettinger's influence, in 1941, Sikorsky created a consortium of fellow exiled European government officials. Their goal was to figure out how to unify Europe at the conclusion of the war. Rettinger was highly involved in these discussions. Yet, despite his ability to influence powerful leaders, he insisted upon remaining in the background. It was important to him that he always wielded his powers of persuasion from the sidelines. Perhaps there's no better depiction of this than a story relayed by Polish author Jan Pomian. In Rettinger's memoirs, Pomian recounted an episode in which Sikorski and Rettinger were on their way to an award ceremony. However, the minute Rettinger discovered that he was the one to be honored at the event, he yanked open the door of the taxi and jumped out of the moving car. A shocked and bemused Sikorsky proceeded on to the ceremony on his own. Rettinger could not be persuaded to attend. Unfortunately, the surprising and fruitful friendship between Rettinger and Sikorsky came to an end shortly after, on the night of July 4, 1943. That evening, Prime Minister Winston Churchill summoned 55-year-old Rettinger to 10 Downing Street. Upon his arrival, Churchill, in tears, told Rettinger that General Sikorsky's plane had crashed. The accident had occurred as he was en route to inspect Polish forces stationed in the Middle East. The flight was purely in support of the war effort. Had there not been a world war, Rettinger's good friend wouldn't have died. Sikorsky's death cemented Rettinger's resolve to see Europe united. Four years later, Rettinger's dreams were even bigger. As a boy, he longed for an independent Poland. As a young man, he'd seen the limitations of his dream and the bloodshed and destruction of the First World War. As an older man, he'd seen America decisively end the Second World War. With that, Rettinger became an avowed Atlanticist. He believed that the only way to end the incessant cycle of war and destruction was to create a group, 
one that brought together the decision makers of Europe with their counterparts across the Atlantic in the United States. To that end, 59-year-old Rettinger began ruminating in the possible creation of such a group. His motivations for creating the group were honest, even noble. He had no idea that the alliance he would create wouldn't reflect his best intentions. It would leverage his ability to bring together the world's most powerful people. But like Rettinger himself, the resulting group would operate deep within the shadows at all costs. Coming up, Rettinger calls to order the first meeting of the Bilderberg Group. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. 64-year-old Yusuf Rettinger spent his life cultivating relationships with the elite so that he could influence politics. But after initially striving for a united Europe, Rettinger decided he hadn't been ambitious enough. He realized that in order to escape the endless cycle of war and destruction, he would have to create a group that brought together powerful people from both sides of the Atlantic. With that in mind, in early 1952, Rettinger consulted his friend Paul Rikens, the chairman of Unilever, a European consumer goods company. Rikens shared his views about the importance of such a group. However, he believed that Rettinger would have to pick someone to lead his group who wouldn't appear partial to any one country's aims. Ultimately, Rettinger decided that the perfect candidate was Prince Bernard of the Netherlands. Since Prince Bernard had married into his title, his position in the Netherlands as the Queen's consort was largely symbolic. This meant he was unlikely to inspire suspicion in the minds of world leaders. Secondly, Rettinger knew Prince Bernard was very popular in America. After conveying his choice to Rikens, an appointment was arranged between Rettinger and the prince. Rettinger's meeting with Prince Bernard was a success. Afterwards, they jointly reached out to the United States. As Rettinger had anticipated, President Eisenhower and his advisors knew and liked Prince Bernard. With Eisenhower's approval, more American statesmen agreed to attend this meeting, which as of yet had no name. Name aside, the conference was set for May 1954 in the Hotel de Bilderberg in Oosterbeek, Netherlands. Even before it began, its organizers decided that the press would be excluded and no meeting minutes would be taken. There were around 80 participants at that first meeting. Rettinger wrote in his memoirs that it was a very high-powered gathering of prominent politicians, industrialists, bankers, and eminent public figures. Unfortunately, the participants' names have never been published. Despite the presence of so many supposed titans of industry and leaders of nations, the atmosphere inside the conference was allegedly tense. But Prince Bernard's good humor apparently eased some of the nervous tension. The specificities of the discussion are unclear. However, we know each speaker was allowed only five minutes at a time. 
Rettinger later wrote that this fostered a lively and stimulating debate, with several attendees jumping in at the conclusion of each block of five minutes to interject their opinions at asides. After three days at the hotel, several hours of meetings, and many much-needed interludes of eating and drinking together, the group's first meeting came to a close. The attendees were so pleased with the proceedings, they decided to make it an annual event. In short order, Prince Bernard of the Netherlands was appointed the chairman of the organization, and Yusuf Rettinger accepted the role of secretary. It's important to note that Bernard and Rettinger weren't chosen in a political election. They weren't the end result of any sort of democratic process. They were elites handpicked by other elites. And of course, they had the advantage of inviting every man who chose them to lead. Together, Rettinger and Prince Bernard made up the group's first steering committee, deciding who among the world's elite would be invited to future meetings and who would shape the direction of the world. Choosing the steering committee wasn't the only decision the attendees made. According to Bilderberg Group, What Don't You Know? by William Myron Price, the group's desire to maintain secrecy was so great that they didn't even give themselves a name. Although they never again met in Osterbeek, all subsequent meetings were simply referred to as Bilderberg meetings. There's been a lot of speculation about this initial insistence on secrecy. Some people claim that the CIA was heavily involved in establishing and even funding the Bilderberg Group. However, it's important to note that this rumor has never been corroborated. A point that is without dispute is the fact that during the first Bilderberg meeting, Rettinger insisted it strictly adhere to the Chatham House rule. This code of conduct was established in 1927 by the UK's Royal Institute of International Affairs. It was often utilized in meetings in which sensitive information was discussed. The rule stipulated that meeting attendees were allowed to disclose what was said during meetings, so long as they didn't divulge the identity of the speaker. The rule was designed so that public officials could speak honestly behind closed doors. The rationale was that if they didn't fear that their words might later be used against them, they'd be more forthcoming. The decision to utilize the Chatham House rule was one of the last Rettinger made as secretary. In 1960, after a lifetime of adventures in politics, the 72-year-old died of lung cancer. After Rettinger's death, subsequent Bilderberg meetings were run largely like the first. Author Myron Price wrote that venues changed, but the meetings were always hosted at upmarket hotels and resorts in Europe or North America. The organizers also continued to insist on high-level security. To that end, the hotels that hosted the conferences were always entirely cleared out of all other guests before the three-day proceedings. As though that didn't ensure their privacy enough, security guards were posted at the entrance of each conference to make sure that no outsiders were allowed entry. This was likely because even in subsequent Bilderberg meetings, the attendees were as impressive as ever. Though the invite list fluctuated, they included royalty, heads of state, industry titans, and famous academics. Finally, the meetings continued to utilize the Chatham House rule, However, over the years, the behavior of Bilderberg's attendees began to exceed even that code of conduct. The Chatham House rule stipulated that what was discussed in meetings could be shared so long as the identity of the speaker was kept a secret. 
However, after the first Bilderberg meeting, attendees of subsequent conferences refused to divulge anything at all. They kept both the content of these meetings, as well as the identities of its attendees, completely hidden. In addition, meeting minutes were still strictly prohibited. This meant that though the rich and powerful gathered in upscale, heavily guarded hotels around the world once a year, no ordinary citizen had any idea what they were discussing. These were meetings where corporate executives were encouraged to discuss issues of great importance with world leaders. Further, the Chatham House rule guaranteed that the content of these talks would never be disclosed. What then was to stop these industry representatives from pushing their special interests and specific agendas? What was to stop a CEO whose profits were based on an inexpensive workforce from utilizing a Bilderberg meeting to push an anti-labor agenda? Or an executive whose revenue stemmed from the exploitation of natural resources from pressuring a head of state to ease environmental laws? The possibilities for corruption and the prioritization of special interests over the public good were endless, and this cult of silence allowed Bilderberg attendees to hide a plethora of sins if they so desired. But in 1956, after three years of Bilderberg meetings, nobody in the media reported on these novel events. This media blackout sustained, despite the fact that several Bilderberg attendees were heads of state and high-ranking corporate executives. Under law, this should have meant that they owed both constituents and shareholders alike some modicum of transparency about their actions. Arguably, these members were acting in their capacity as private citizens when they attended the conferences, but they likely wouldn't have been invited to the meetings at all if not for their esteemed positions. Yet somehow, Bilderberg's rules seem to suggest that these potential compromises were necessary to ensure open dialogue. However, even that suggestion raised questions. Namely, why did Bilderberg attendees need absolute privacy to speak openly and honestly? Were people to assume that these CEOs and heads of state were dishonest in public? Regardless of the implications, one thing remains clear. The Bilderberg Steering Committee has no intention of lifting the veil. It wasn't until four years after the first meeting that one journalist finally attempted to uncover what all Bilderberg attendees worked so hard to hide. In 1957, Pulitzer-winning columnist Westbrook Pegler wrote a little distributed article about the Bilderberg meeting. In it, he said, something very mysterious is going on when a strange assortment of arbiters of the economic and political fate of our Western world go into a secret huddle on an island of Brunswick, Georgia, and not a word gets into the popular press. Pegler disclosed that he learned about the meeting from a woman who'd happened to accidentally stumble upon the hotel where it was taking place. The woman told him that the hotel had seemed deserted at first glance. However, when she commented upon the strange emptiness of the place, the hotel's clerk responded that it had been alive with mysterious characters a few days earlier, and with the Secret Service and FBI, too. According to conspiracy theorist Mark Dice in the Bilderberg group Facts and Fiction, after Pegler published his article, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist began criticizing executives of the powerful Hearst Corporation, which owned and controlled almost 30 different newspapers in America at the time. 
Dice suggested that Pegler found it outrageous that no Hearst publications were covering the meetings. For his trouble, Pegler was fired. Perhaps Pegler's dismissal is why several decades after his article, it was still rare to find any mention of the Bilderberg meetings in newspapers. Perhaps other journalists feared that they too would suffer the same fate. Things changed in 1975 when Big Jim Tucker, a journalist who worked for fringe right publication The Spotlight, discovered the group. After some digging, Tucker grew obsessed with the annual secret meetings. He wrote numerous articles about them for The Spotlight. In one such article, Tucker wrote, if 140 of the world's best-known baseball players or movie stars gathered secretly under armed guard, every major newspaper and magazine would be demanding to know what was going on behind closed doors. But when 140 of the world's richest financiers, industrialists, media titans, and political figures get together under such circumstances, none of the journalists who posture as cynics dares to mention a word? Despite his passion for the subject matter, Tucker's articles didn't push awareness of the Bilderberg Group into the mainstream. However, readers of his niche publication began asking the same questions he was. Namely, what were these people discussing? And why did they insist on absolute secrecy? The dearth of information about the secretive group of elites caused rumors and conspiracy theories to abound. People on the political left accused the Bilderberg Group of plotting to create an evil capitalist empire. People on the right suspected them of scheming towards a controlling socialist nanny state. These partisan hypotheses might have made up the sum total of Bilderberg literature, but in 1999, journalist John Ronson jumped into the fray. Ronson decided to look into the Bilderberg Conference after several of the people he interviewed brought it up. He had no idea that in his pursuit for the truth, he would fall under the gaze of the mysterious and possibly dangerous group. Coming up, Ronson flees the Bilderberg Group's hired goons. Now, back to the story. After several years of what seemed like a coordinated lack of coverage, a few journalists started writing about the Bilderberg meetings. And Big Jim Tucker, a writer at a small conservative publication called The Spotlight, garnered wider attention in 1975. This was essentially how the Bilderberg meetings came onto the radar of 32-year-old British journalist John Ronson. In the course of his work, people who were familiar with Tucker's articles kept bringing up the Bilderberg group. In his book, Them, Adventures with Extremists, Ronson wrote that he was skeptical of a tiny band of insidious and clandestine power mongers who met in a secret room from which they ruled the world. Despite his doubts, Ronson was curious. In 1999, Big Jim Tucker was the closest thing to an authority on the subject, so Ronson decided to pay him a visit. In May, Ronson met 65-year-old Tucker for the first time at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Big Jim was a chain-smoking, gravel-voiced mountain of a man. During the meeting, as Ronson watched, Big Jim picked up the phone and said, Mother, your dutiful son is playing Kick the Can on Pennsylvania Avenue, Tuesday morning, 10.30 a.m. Thank you. 
When Ronson asked about the strange call, Big Jim explained that he needed to place the call to a friend on a daily basis to prove that he was still alive. After all, he'd been on the trail of the Bilderberg Group for two decades. There was no telling when they'd kill him for his trouble, making his death look like a run-of-the-mill D.C. mugging. After that alarming statement, Big Jim cheerfully suggested they take a break. Over drinks, Big Jim told Ronson that he knew exactly where that year's Bilderberg Group meeting was set to take place. Even more exciting, he planned to infiltrate the proceedings, and Ronson was more than welcome to tag along. His plan was as follows. He and Ronson would travel to Portugal. On arrival, they'd patrol the hotel resort until they figured out a way to break in. When a skeptical Ronson asked exactly how they were supposed to break into a famously impenetrable meeting, Big Jim gave a vague answer about looking for the short wall and shimmying up drain pipes. He seemed to think that the specificities didn't matter. They'd figure it out once they got to Sintra, Portugal that June. Upon arriving in Sintra, Big Jim told Ronson that the Bilderberg Group had sent their security guards ahead of them. According to him, these guards were already at the Caesar Park Hotel, where over 100 of the world's most powerful elites would soon descend. Then, Big Jim told Ronson that Bilderberg's private security had a shoot-to-kill policy for all interlopers. After that disclosure, he immediately suggested they head over to the Caesar Park Hotel to scope it out. He posited that after getting the lay of the land, they could return later and break into the hotel. To that end, Ronson rented a car from Budget and the two set off down a mountain road. Their destination? The Caesar Park Hotel. On the way to the hotel, they came up with cover stories in case they were found out. Big Jim suggested they pretend to be holiday-goers, there to take in the fresh air. Though Ronson didn't think the holiday-goer gambit seemed plausible, he couldn't come up with anything better, so he agreed. Soon, the two pulled up outside the Caesar Park Hotel's formidable peach gates. At the sight of the dense undergrowth and imposing mountains surrounding the structure, Ronson was struck with how impossible their so-called midnight penetration was going to be. However, it appeared that the Bilderberg Group had yet to set up their security barricade. The two were able to drive into the hotel. Once they were within the Caesar Park compound, Big Jim took one look at all the happy hotel-goers milling around and said, the civilians haven't been shifted out yet. He took a picture of the oblivious tourists. Then Big Jim suggested the two grab lunch at the hotel's restaurant. There, Big Jim tried to pump a waitress for information about the supposed upcoming Bilderberg meeting, but the waitress seemed to have no clue what he was talking about. Ronson was likely skeptical that a nefarious meeting was set to take place in such an innocuous setting. Regardless, he didn't resist when Big Jim suggested they split up to see what intel they could separately glean from inside the hotel itself. After walking around on his own for a little bit, Ronson realized he wasn't on his own. A man in a tweed jacket was following him. The minute Ronson noticed him, the man approached and introduced himself as the hotel manager. He noticed Ronson and Big Jim together, taking pictures and attempting to interrogate a waitress. Then, his voice as hard as steel, the manager demanded to know 
who Ronson was. The only thing Ronson could think of to say for himself was that he was British. The hotel manager pressed on, demanding to know what Ronson was doing at the hotel. Before Ronson could respond, a different man walked up. The newcomer was an older man. He had a tan and a distinct European accent. As Ronson watched, the European man gave a little laugh and squeezed the hotel manager's shoulder. Then he reassured the manager that everything was fine and there was no problem. After essentially telling the hotel manager to stand down, the European man turned to Ronson. Without prompting, he said, Think of this hotel as your home. If I can be of any service to you, don't hesitate to ask. I mean, what could you possibly be doing here that could cause any harm to anybody? Though the words were said with a smile, there was something distinctly threatening about the delivery. Nervous, but trying not to show it, Ronson asked the European man if he worked for the hotel. The European said, no, I'm not with the hotel. I'm with another organization. Ronson read the entire exchange as an implicit threat. He felt as though the Bilderberg group was signaling to him that he wasn't welcome. Duly intimidated, Ronson fled the hotel. Moments later, he met back up with Big Jim outside. Before he could tell the other man what had transpired, the two noticed a commotion. A dozen police motorcycles were lining up in the car park. Big Jim leaned in and whispered, the shutdown is beginning. Then they climbed into their car and drove out of the hotel, aware that the shutdown meant the Bilderberg attendees were about to arrive. Ronson and Big Jim returned to the Caesar Park Hotel the next day. Though they expected to see the Bilderberg attendees, there were none visible, and the prior day's barricades were gone. Making the situation even more confusing, they'd expected the hotel to be shut down, but when they drove up to the gates, the security guards simply waved them in. Big Jim turned to Ronson and said, We saw the shutdown begin yesterday. We saw it with our own eyes. And now, no shutdown. This is not what's supposed to happen. The two had expected to drive up, confirm the presence of the barricades, and get turned away from the gate. Then Big Jim would document the proceedings for the spotlight. Instead, Big Jim and Ronson incomprehensibly found themselves inside the Caesar Park Hotel once again. On the other side of the gates, Ronson and Big Jim made another alarming discovery. The hotel, the grounds, the pool, the on-site restaurant, they were all deserted. This terrifying realization begged the question, why had they been allowed inside its gates when it had plainly been cleared of all the other guests? At a loss for what to do, the two grabbed lunch in the empty restaurant. Then they hopped back into their car and drove fast towards the deserted hotel's gates. That's when Ronson noticed the dark green Lancia steadily trailing their car for the first time. He told Big Jim that they were being followed. In response, Big Jim assured him that the Bilderberg group was clearly just trying to scare them. The car surely wouldn't follow them onto the deserted road. However, as Ronson turned onto the road, the green Lancia turned too. When Ronson slowed, the Lancia slowed. When he turned, it turned. Three hours later, the car was still following them. Ronson even tried pulling over, certain that would be enough to shake his tail. 
Instead, the green Lancia also pulled over, its occupants settling in to wait. With their tail parked behind him, Ronson was spooked enough to call the British embassy. But if he had hoped for reassurance from Great Britain's sole outpost in Portugal, he was quickly disappointed. The woman on the other end of the line told Ronson that the Bilderberg Group was way out of the embassy's league. Then she cautioned the terrified journalist to go back to his hotel and sit tight. She continued, whatever happens, don't incite them in any way. Don't fan the flames. In line with her advice, Ronson and Big Jim drove back to their hotel. As they pulled into the parking lot, the green Lancia remained on their tail. Ronson stopped the car. Then he and Big Jim waited, frozen in anticipation. And then the door to the green Lancia clicked open, and a man in a dark suit climbed out. As for his identity, that's next time on Secret Societies. Thanks again for tuning in to Secret Societies. We'll be back next week with part two of the Bilderberg Group. We'll see the conclusion of Ronson's run-in with the club. Then we'll investigate the conspiracy theories surrounding the group. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Abiageli Adimegu, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Paulson and Vanessa Richardson.